2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we last week covered the qualifications of the office of pastor, also known as elder, also known as overseer, all of those being one body of men. Now today I want to bring a message to you entitled, The Charge, or excuse me, The Elder's Charge, His Responsibility. And we are, as you know, uh, going to bring two men uh, before you as a church, as pastors. You have, we brought them to you. You have looked at their life. You have examined them. You have accepted them as pastors. And now we're bringing them back to you and installing them publicly that you and all the world might know that they are shepherds in God's flock. And so we want to look at what you're being charged with as elders. God's pattern God's pattern is to use the weak, the small, the insignificant, and the foolish things of this world to confound, to stand against, to overcome the strong, the big, the significant, and the wise. In our day, when we think of a great leader, there are several characteristics that come to our minds. Great leaders according to the system of this world, a great leader is one who is visionary. Visionary, energetic, hard-driving in their work. Uh, they're, they're focused on objective tasks, not people. Matter of fact, the great leader, as we see it, though we may not like it when we're in the place of being used by that leader, we all recognize that great leaders like great generals move the army pieces where they must go in the battlefront to accomplish their objective. And it doesn't matter who they step on, who they hurt, who they destroy in the process. If the, at the end of the day the job is done, that's all that matters in great leadership in our world. Great leaders in our day are brave, courageous men who go against all odds to accomplish the task. People have always looked at these characteristics when choosing leaders. We see in the Old Testament that the people of God in that day, Israel, when they wanted a king like the other nations around them, they went looking for a man that met these qualifications, and they found him. And his name was, was Saul. He stood head and shoulder above all men of Israel. He was stately in his appearance. He dressed the part. He looked the part. He acted the part. He was a successful man. He looked like the kings of the nations that surrounded Israel. And they took him in. We would say in our day he looked presidential. You've heard that. I'm sure, I'm sure if you follow politics in our day, you have to look presidential. People are always focusing on the outside appearance of a man. And by the appearance, they believe they're able to choose a great leader by looking at his outside. In 2012, we as a nation will choose a leader again. And... Do not be surprised, but the fact is no one will make the ballot. No one will make the ballot who doesn't pass the eye test. Now, the political pundits won't come out and just simply say, this man looks like a president or this woman looks like a president, but we all know that's what's going on, right? The short, overweight, uh, not good-looking man who doesn't collect his thoughts well on TV will never, no matter how qualified he is, no matter how right he is on the issues, will never be the President of the United States of America. 
Not in our day, no. They got to pass the eye test. What, what most voters will be asking themselves is, does he or does she look like a president? Does he, does she sound like a president? They're just looking at the outside of the person, trying to decide who their leader should be by the outside qualifications. But this is not how God chooses leaders. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, and not in our day. He does not make them pass the eye test. He does not call them presidential. As a matter of fact, he's not necessarily looking for a man of great vision. Neither do I think he's looking for a man of great, uh, uh, great strength. Here's what I think he's doing. He's not looking for a man of vision. He's looking for a man of great character. That's what God's looking for. He's not looking for a man whose focus is accomplishing tasks. He's looking for a man whose focus is shepherding sheep. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for a man who's self-confident and brave. He's looking for a humble man who finds his courage in Christ alone. God is not bound by our standards. He's looking for a few men who are committed to His kingdom for His glory through His church. That's who God's looking for. I believe we have two men like that today coming before us. Dave and Bruce have demonstrated godly character for years among you. They each love to disciple people. They, they uh, give themselves to this task. And we have watched as they've placed their confidence in Christ in many situations. And we could go through them one by one. But they've been examples to us in this way. I can't think of any two men who would better exemplify the role of an elder than these two men. I look to them as leaders and as elders. This morning, I, I simply want to lay out a challenge and an exhortation to these men and to our congregation from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I want both of you, Dave and Bruce, I want you both to know that I love you. You're brothers to me because of your love for Christ and for His church. It's an honor to serve with you. And I pray that God will cause us to serve together for years to come, for His kingdom and for His glory. And I want this passage to be a rock for you in your life as you labor to see the kingdom of God come in this place and come into our world. I want it to be a rock to you because I know that the realities will sink in beginning today and especially tomorrow of the task that is so large. It's overwhelming. The, the task seems impossible. I want this passage to be a rock. I want it to be a place where you can go and remember and think of what God's called you to. May He be glorified in you as you are more and more satisfied in Him. That's what we want. That's what we want. Let's look at this passage together and just briefly put out four things we see in this passage that is a charge. That it's a charge, and I'm going to word it to these two men. Don't check out on me. It fits for the whole congregation. But I want to focus in on these two guys this morning. First of all, Dave and Bruce, you will have to undertake your God-given dependent responsibility. You will have to undertake it. If you look at the first verse, and we haven't read the passage this morning, so let me read it and then I'll make the point. I'm sorry. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, Dave and Bruce, you will have to undertake your God-given, dependent responsibility. Now, that sounds strange, responsibility and dependence. But I want you to look at the verse with me in verse 1. You must undertake this God-given, dependent responsibility. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the way the ESV reads. The King James or New King James Version reads, Be strong, my child. That's the way the verse starts. Be strong, my child. And so it comes across as a command, which it is a command by the, by the wording here. It is a command, but it's interesting. By wording it, be strong, it sounds as if it's a responsibility. That's half the equation. But what's not brought out in the translation, be strong, is the dependence of the responsibility. Which the ESV does perfectly. Be strengthened, my child. You, you see, you hear it? Be strengthened. This is a par- present passive verb. Be strengthened is present and it's passive. It's something that's happening now to you as the leader of God's church. As a person in God's church. It's happening on you. An outside force is doing it. And He gives us the outside force. Be strengthened in what? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is strengthening the man. It is dependence. Which brings us to the abilities of accomplishing the responsibility. And so I believe that the original is best indicated in the ESV. The life that we live as Christians is a dependent responsibility. It is the you must do, married with, only if He does it in me will I do it. Okay? Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and will what you command. He Understood this dependent responsibility. Command whatever you will. You are the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Command what you will. But then, Lord, will it to be accomplished. Because if you don't will it to be accomplished, I can't do it. And so this is a dependent responsibility in that way. There's two ungodly and sinful attitudes which I think are identified in this verse implicitly. First of all, the attitude of I can do it all. Bruce and Dave, you will have to guard yourself against this attitude. Because you are leaders, you will want to take these things by the hand and do them. You'll want to take the bull by the horns and force it into the corral. You'll want to get it done. Go home and feel like you've accomplished something for yourselves and for God and for His kingdom. And the sad thing, or the true reality is, you'll go home a lot of days Feeling you've done less, not more. Feeling you've gone backwards, not forward. Wondering how in the world did God get any glory out of that. 
It's okay. Part of the equation is that humility of I can't do it. So one sinful attitude is I can do it all. The second sinful attitude identified in this verse is God will do it all without me. The old let go, let God, Keswick idea. You don't know that by the name of its theology, but it's rampant in our day. People sing it, people say it as if it's a truism from the Bible. Let go and let God. That's an ungodly thing. God has never said let go. No, God has used, we're going to see in verses 3 through 6, examples in His Word that if you let go, you'll either die in battle, lose the crown, or won't get the job done. You can't let go. You can't just let go. That's an ungodly attitude. So you have on one side the the A personalities who grab everything by the nap of the neck and force it to get done. And they say it's for God's glory, but really it's through their own strength. And then you have the ungodliness on the other side that says, Oh, I don't have to do anything. God's going to do it all. I don't have to pray for lost people. If God wants to save them, He'll save them. I don't have to talk to my neighbor about Christ because if God's elected them... They'll be in the kingdom. I don't have to counsel my daughter or my son with good godly counsel because God will just somehow, through osmosis, put it in their brain. I don't have to do anything. Just let go and let God do it. No. That's ungodly. Along, it's just as ungodly as the other side. So men, as you go to undertake, it's a dependent on the grace of God task that must be done responsibly. It must be done. Pastoring is work, and we're going to see that later. It's not a lazy man's role. Paul says we must be strong. It is a command by the grace of God. Strong is responsibility. Grace is dependence. That's where I get the idea. So Dave and Bruce, you cannot do the work of an elder by your own strength. Many men fail in the ministry because they're working by their own strength. You will always need to lean on the grace of God in every situation so that you are responsible in the discharge of your ministry. I I just want to say here quickly, you know, here's the the truth uh, that as I see and as I found. We need the gospel. Listen, congregation, people visiting with us, you need the gospel every moment of every day. The gospel is not that which saves us and then we go on our own strength to live life. The gospel is the truth which saves us and and goes with us in this life. So much so that if we don't rise every morning preaching the gospel to ourselves, I'll just make this recommendation. Before your feet hit the floor, before you get out of bed, you need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to yourself new every morning. Every morning. I have come to a thought just in the last week about lamentations. His graces are new every morning. This is just my thought. It's new every morning because the gospel is preached to you by yourself and the Spirit every morning. You need to understand that. Grace is not some magical fairy dust which floats down to us. It comes to us through His Word. If you're not preaching the gospel to yourself every day, if you're only hearing the gospel on Sunday or on the radio once in a while or in conversation once in a while, if you're not preaching it every day at every juncture of the day to yourself, 
you will begin to live by your own strength or you will begin to live in this ignorance, stepping back saying, God's going to do it all. If you ever forget the gospel for one moment, the task will be undone. It will go undone. And so that's the first thing. Secondly, Dave and Bruce, you will have to pass on and guard the good deposit of the gospel. That's verse 2. You'll have to pass it on. You've been entrusted with it. And even more so now. People say, well, we're all entrusted with the gospel. Yes, we are. But to a heightened degree, the elder is entrusted. James recognized it in James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that there is a stricter judgment for those who teach. You men are entering a stricter judgment. You men are catching hold of the the mantle of the apostle. You don't wear the apostle's mantle, but now by holding to his word through study and prayer, you are grasping hold of the mantle of the apostle. And if you don't hold it, if you let go, even for a day, even for a week, even for a year, it will destroy ministry and it will destroy you. So you must pass on and guard the deposit of the gospel. Look in verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will pass it on to faithful men who will be able to pass it on to others. That's what it's saying. Now, I find this verse uh, to be somewhat of a life verse. I wish I was better at living it out. I'm praying by the grace of God I will be better in years to come at living this verse out. But this is the charge of the elder. To take the gospel into your own soul and then pass it on to the soul of another who is faithful to pass it on to the soul of another. It doesn't end with you, but it does begin with you. And so you cannot pass on what you do not know. You must teach yourself the gospel daily from His Word. And then you must be intentional in your life, men, to pass this on. And the intentionality comes with both the method which you pass it on. I believe the method of the Old Testament is most effective. Life on life, day by day, activity by activity, teaching them the Word of Christ. Every day, in all facets of your life, you are teaching, you are shepherding the flock. Not only are you doing that, but you must also guard it. Where do I get this idea of guarding protecting, watching over. Well, verse 14 of chapter 1. This whole letter, if you want to see Paul's heart for ministry, this is the letter. This is it. He writes this as a dying man. We believe in a hole, a prison cell underneath the ground with a grate over the top where both water was poured down to him and food was thrown down to him. He was in a hole in the ground writing 2 Timothy. He's dying. He's already been on trial. He mentions it in chapter 4. And he knows he's going back on trial. He doesn't expect to live through the second trial. He expects to die. This is second Roman imprisonment. This is not the Roman imprisonment where he sat in a house with guards and received friends. This is a suffering time for Paul. And he's under the ground, being rained on, in the cold, in the heat, all the elements of life, and this is what he cares to write about. That should strike you. Think about that. 
Put, try, we, we can't do it, but try to put yourself where Paul was in this situation. What would you write a letter to your, dear, your dearest friend about? I'm not thinking many of us would write this letter, myself included, but Paul did. It shows us how much he loved Timothy and how much he knew it was necessary to bolster the young man in the faith so that he might carry on the work which Paul was about to leave. First chapter, verse 14. I'm just jumping in the middle of the, par- the end of the paragraph. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, there's that dependent responsibility again. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the deposit, the good deposit entrusted to you. You are not strong enough, courageous enough, smart enough, men, to guard the faith, but the Holy Spirit is. But you are responsible for it being guarded. If 50 years from now, Grace Fellowship is not a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church, it will be our fault, elders, not the people's fault. We will stand before Christ accountable, not the people of this church. It's a charge given to us, and we depend on God to do it. Be careful here. I see that, first of all. Be careful to... uh, Guard to teach the truth and guard the truth. Now, I also want to say, I think I see here that we must be careful to choose, intentional to choose the right men as we move forward. And this is touchy. Understand, this this will frustrate a mama, especially if you're talking about her son or her daughter. But the elder, the pastor of the church, is not to just indiscriminately pass on the faith just to anybody I, if, I, if I did that I wouldn't be very effective there's tough decisions to be made Dave you've got a lot amount of time and you must invest it well you must redeem it and so you cannot therefore disciple and teach everybody you must find faithful men Bruce you work a full, more than full time job with a more than full-time family, and you're shepherding a church now. If you don't choose wisely when you die, the investment will not have grown, and the faith will not have been passed forward. We must be intentional. Now that's what I want. You say, well, what's so touchy about that? Well, the touchiness of it is, is that these men will have to be careful who they spend their time with. They will guard their time, and they will invest in good investments. And that means some won't get invested in by these men. You say, well, that's playing favorites. No, that's following a pattern laid out for us by Christ, laid out for us by Paul the Apostle. How did Christ pattern this for us? Oh, surely you know. He had a crowd of 500, which inside the crowd he had a crowd of 120 which inside the crowd he had a crowd of 70, which inside of that crowd he had a crowd of 12, which inside that crowd of 12 he had three, which inside that three he had one. His name was Peter. He did not spend the time, the energy, nor did he try to pass on the gospel to be guarded and taught to the 500, but rather to the 12, the 3, and the 1. 
There were days, and men, this will be true for you, there will be days you will have to turn down the 500 to be with the one. And when you do, you will face all of hell's fury. And it will most likely come from those who are in the church. You've got to stand on the rock of this passage and know that you've been entrusted with a deposit that has to be pushed forward. I think of immediately the parable, I'm sure some of you have, of the servants who were entrusted with talents. Right? Five, four, and one. And what did Jesus say? The ungodly servant was an ungodly servant because he did not invest wisely. He buried it. He wasted it. And it was taken from him and given to who? The one who had the most. Well, you say the four did exactly what the guy with five did. Five became ten. Four became eight. They both doubled their deposits. But Jesus said something very key in that passage. To whom much is given. That the, the much symbolizes a greater capacity for increasing. So you may have been entrusted with much. You have to also entrust it to those who can handle much, not little. So, we have a very serious task which has been entrusted to us, teaching and guarding. So therefore, preaching is not enough. Now, in chapter 4, if you flip there, he charges his young student, his young disciple, to preach the Word in season and out of season. That's the mantra of many conservative, Bible-believing men who are in the pulpit. I'm preaching the Word. But that's not enough. It's not enough for you to bury yourself in a hole somewhere and come out on Sundays and mingle with the people. Preaching the Word will be bolstered by your personal discipling ministry outside of the pulpit and outside of the lectern where you preach the Word. Okay? So it's a daily task. And it's done in more ways than just preaching. It's never less than preaching, but it's never only preaching. It's preaching and discipleship. And discipleship is daily and life to life. Okay, so I've said that. Your life verse, in many ways, guys, needs to be, not because it's mine, but because it needs to be yours in some way. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul says... Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Let that one sink in for a little while. Dependent responsibility. I'm going to follow Christ by the Holy Spirit and the grace which God gives me, and I want you to follow me. You're responsible that people are following you. Make that your verse. Third, Dave and Bruce, you will have to suffer as a good soldier. You will have to suffer as a good soldier. You will have to live a disciplined life like an athlete. And you will have to work hard like a farmer. Now, he took three analogies which are scattered through the Scripture and puts them in one text for us. You say, How do you, what, is, what does a pastor do? He fights like a soldier. That's only part of the picture. What does a pastor do? What do you do every day? I, I have to discipline myself like an athlete. Well, 
Yeah, but, I mean, don't you work? Yes, I work as hard as a farmer. Now let me unpack those quickly. You're in a real war, men. You're in a real war. You've been in a war and now you've been moved to commanding, leading troops in the war. I've never done that. We have men in this room that have. But I can only imagine that when you're in the foxhole as the private, it's a different experience as being in the foxhole as the captain or the major or the lieutenant colonel. Because the private's worried about who? The private. When the bombs start falling, he ducks and covers. Right? The lieutenant colonel stands firm and thinks for the whole group and protects them in that way. That's what you men have become now. When the, fly, when the shots are fired, you don't duck and cover. You stand firm. So, you're a soldier and you're in a war and there's a lot of bullets flying. There's a lot of things being done against the church from within the church and from without. So you must fight like a good soldier. He says in verse 3, Share in suffering. Share in suffering. We spend our lives, moms, protecting our children from suffering, don't we? When little Johnny falls and skins his knee, mommy runs and picks him up, tells him it's okay, he's got a boo-boo, kisses the boo-boo, cleans the boo-boo, gives him a popsicle for the boo-boo. So he doesn't suffer, and if he does, it's mitigated. Paul, on the other hand, is telling his child, Come suffer with me. We don't find that very comforting, do we? When we're in our flesh, but in our spirit. What Paul is saying to young Timothy is, Timothy, my suffering is not worth being counted when compared to the glory which it is laying up for me in heaven. Some of our parents, just to take a break from Dave and Bruce, let them off the hot seat for a moment. Some of you as parents need to remember that the suffering of this life is designed by God to bring the person into conformity with Christ and into the kingdom with full reward. So when you're mitigating their suffering, you may be stealing from them their reward. We have to be careful as parents. Whether we're helping our child or hurting our child, it's a thin line. It's a hard line, but it's there. At some point, everyone who enters the kingdom of God will, what? Suffer. Peter said it is better, if ordained by God, to suffer for Christ. It's better to suffer for Christ. What good have you gained if you suffer for doing evil? But when you do good and they cause you to suffer, you're suffering for Christ, therefore it's a good thing. Suffer. Peter wouldn't run into the fire and pull his student out. Sometimes he would let him burn. And he would praise God because he burned. Paul's doing that here. He's not telling him, Hey, Timothy, lots of stuff's being shot our way, son. Duck for cover. No, he's saying, Stand up in the trench, son. You're now the leader. I'm dying. You're the leader. Take the charge. Move the troops. Be a good soldier. Now that won't connect with every phase of the ministry. So he said, therefore, also the athlete 
must run for the crown. And they don't receive a crown unless they abide by the law, the rules of the contest. It doesn't matter how fast you are as a sprinter if you step on the lane. It doesn't matter how fast your relay team is if you drop the baton. There are rules to the engagement. And Paul's saying don't jettison the discipline of the rules to try to get more done. Follow the rules so you receive the crown. And the promise here is not like the promise of a sprinter. Only one will receive the sprinter's prize. In this run, if you keep the rules and run, you get a prize. You get a prize. You get to the finish line and there he is, your prize. So he's saying you must be like that disciplined runner. A runner doesn't get ready for a race the night before. He gets ready years before. John MacArthur talking about being disciplined in the ministry said in an interview one time that when he went into the ministry, his dad's advice, all these people had come and congratulated him and told him how grand it was he was going to the ministry. His dad had... One word of advice to him. <laughs> Son, you're going to suffer. Get ready. Great. <laughs> Way to pat me on the back. Make me feel good. This I just got ordained in the gospel ministry and all my dad can say is, get ready, you're about to suffer. He went through the first year of his ministry and it went great and there were no problems. And he went to his dad at the end of the year and said, hey dad, I've been in the year, I hadn't suffered. He said, don't worry, it's coming, be patient. And he said, and my dad was right. And he has suffered. Because all pastors suffer. Men, you're not moving away from the responsibility, nor are you moving away from the suffering. You're moving into the suffering. You have now moved your family into the suffering. Therefore, you should not be surprised that the weapons of Satan now form even stronger against your families. And Lisa and Tammy, I don't say that to scare you. Because the one who began the work in you will finish the work. He promised him that in the first chapter. Hold to the faith and he'll finish for you. So I'm not trying to scare you. But you should not be caught off guard by health problems, financial problems, people problems, work problems, you should not be caught off guard because what Satan wants for you is to disqualify yourself because he knows the most powerful force on the earth is the gospel in the hands of a humble and faithful family and a elder which stands in the trenches instead of ducking for cover. Don't be shocked by it. But that's not all he says. Not just a good soldier, not just an athlete, but you're a farmer. In, in this third verse, he ends with that one. I like that one. That's one. I've, I've, I've not been a soldier. I have been an athlete, though it, I wasn't a very good one. I was very disciplined, but I was not very good. But look what it says at the end. I do get this one. It is the hardworking farmer. That word means exhausted. When you're in the middle of this guy six months in and you're worn out, Paul would, and you go to wine, Paul, Paul would say from heaven, what are you whining for? I told you you would be exhausted. He didn't hide the fact from Timothy. He didn't, like a lot of churches, build it up like some grandiose position to get a lot of guys to volunteer. He told them the truth. You're going to get shot at more than anyone else. You're going to have to be more disciplined so you can receive the prize. And you're going to be exhausted every day at the end of the day. 
You're going to be exhausted. He told him the truth. And look what he followed that up with, though, in the verse. Look what he says in verse 3. I mean, excuse me, in verse 6. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. And that used to confuse me a little. And the more I've dug at it, I think it means this. Feed your soul as a hardworking farmer so you can feed other souls. Bruce and Dave, if you leave off your personal time with Christ to help another sheep, you will fail. Feed your soul. George Mueller used to rise every day early in the morning and he spent three to four hours in prayer and Bible study. Why? Because he had little souls that had to be fed and he couldn't feed them unless he was fed. You're not cheating the church when you feed yourself. You're doing an important task. Keep doing it. Don't quit now. Don't replace private time of study for counseling sessions with individuals. Don't replace private time of study and prayer for even discipleship. Do not forsake the private time of the Word to go and preach on a grand stand. You will fail. Stay with Him closely. Study His Word. Pray and commune with Him so that you can eat the first share of the crop and feed the others. It sounds contradicting. Because in our day we think about mass production, but in their day when the farmer farmed, he farmed for his family first. And you think, well, that's kind of selfish. No, it's not. Think of it this way. If the farmer knows his family's livelihood rides on the crop being well tended, he will tend it well, won't he? And if he tends it well, the promise is that God will give him increase. And so there will be more fruit to share with everyone. So... As you study in your private time that nobody sees, remember you're eating from the crop first and the fruit will be sweeter for those who eat with you later. So, be the hard-working farmer. Be the disciplined athlete. Be the real soldier in a real war. Finally, Dave and Bruce, you will have to reflect daily over your God-given instruction so that you do not stray from your calling. You'll have to reflect over it. Verse 7. Look what he says. There's no throwaway verses in the Bible. They all have a purpose. Verse 7 seems anticlimactic. we got all this truth. We love it. We're like, wow! In verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's kind of anticlimactic. I don't know what that's about. Think over your calling, men, every day. If you don't, you will stray from it. That's what he's telling him. You don't get ordained as a pastor in a service like this and then 40 years later die having never thought again about the charge of being a pastor. It's a daily thought process. When you rise now, you rise not simply as a child of God, as the husband of Tammy or Lisa, not simply as the father of all of your many children, but you now are an employee of Donahoe School or UPS, you don't just rise with those hats. You rise now with a new hat, the calling of the shepherd in the flock of God. And you have to remember every day He has called you to it. And what has He called me to? Because if not, you will waste your time on things that do not matter. 
black holes of ministry, as D.A. Carson calls it, that will suck your energy and time until it is gone and you will be ineffective. You have to remember, He has called me. He has charged me to guard this deposit, to teach this deposit to faithful men and women, mainly men for you two, women for your wives, and raise up the next generation. And if I'm going to do that, I've got to be a soldier, I've got to be an athlete, I've got to be a farmer. I must spend time in His Word, prepare myself with the armor of God for the war which is at hand, standing tall in the trenches as a disciplined, disciplined man of God so that the gospel goes forward, the church is strengthened, the kingdom is made into a reality. And I return in close to just simply say, it's this weak thing which God has chosen. The church is weak. The pastors of the churches are weak. They're foolish. We are foolish. We are insignificant. And yet it is this which God has said, My kingdom will come. My will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the daily bread is given and we are delivered from the evil one and sins are forgiven and forgiveness is given God's kingdom and glory are established forever and ever. This is our charge. This is our call. And I'm asking you now in front of these witnesses to join us in this. Join us willingly, not under compulsion, not for money and unfruitful gain, but for the souls of your brothers and sisters. Join us. Join us as soldier, as athlete, and as farmer so that His glory might be revealed in and through us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we stop now,